0: In the year 386, St. Augustine was the professor of rhetoric in Milan. Before he became a Christian, he tells the story of one day seated in a garden, weeping under spiritual conviction. He heard in the distance children playing. They kept repeating a refrain, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. He looked and beside him, he had brought a Bible. He picked it up and he opened it. He began to read wherever his eyes fell. Later in his confessions, he wrote these words. No sooner had I come to the end of that verse. The light of God filled my heart. And all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And I was completely converted. In May of 1738, John Wesley was invited to attend a religious meeting at Aldersgate Street in London, England. He writes of the experience. He said, I listened to the man as he spoke about the difference God makes when he invades the heart. And about a quarter till nine, My heart was strangely warmed. I trusted Christ that night, Christ and Christ alone, and he saved me. He sparked within me an inextinguishable blaze. April, 1981. Nearly a seven-year-old knobby-kneed scrawny boy knelt beside his bed, with his parents flanking him on his right and on his left. That night, that little boy prayed and asked Jesus to come into his heart. And Jesus saved him that night. I can give testimony of that to be true because I was that little seven-year-old, scrawny, knobby-kneed boy. And not a day has passed that I regret that decision. I am indebted to Christ Because of what he has done for me. I wonder, do you have a story like that? Do you have a story of a moment when Christ invaded your heart? When the light of the Lord illuminated your heart and mind and rolled away doubts and sparked within you an inextinguishable blaze? Can you point to a moment, can you point to a time when God was the hound of heaven who pursued you? It is with that thought in mind that I invite you to take your Bible. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Today we continue our study of this great New Testament letter. I want to read in your hearing Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. Philippians chapter 3. Allow me to begin at verse 7. I'll conclude at verse 11. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. And Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There are more than a few theologians who come to these verses and say that this is the basis of our great doctrine of the justification by grace through faith alone in Christ. In these few verses, Paul gives us a vivid description of how a sinner is declared righteous in God's sight. He begins with the statement, but whatever was to my profit I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He begins that statement with a strong contrasting word. It is one of the big buts of the Bible. It is so large, so strong, so dogmatic that what Paul is saying is he's alerting the reader that what's about to follow stands in stark opposition to what has preceded this passage. So what has preceded this passage? What has Paul written in the first six verses of this third chapter before he gets to that great word, but whatever was to my prophet? Well, Paul is warning the church at Philippi, beware of false teachers who are trying to lead you astray. History will call these false teachers Judaizers. Judaizers were self-proclaimed Jewish Christians. But Paul says they're not Christians for they're not peddling the gospel that's consistent with the Scripture. Paul tells the church, beware of those dogs those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. He has in his mind these false teachers that have come into the church trying to lead the church astray from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls them dogs. Now, traditionally, the word dog was spoken by a Jew to a Gentile. Jews would always call Gentiles dogs. Paul flips the script. Paul calls these Jewish men mangy mutts. Now, they boasted that the good that they did gave evidence to their merited righteousness. They said, we are people who do good works. We are good people who do good works, and those good works... Garnish us righteousness, innocence in the sight of God. What does Paul call them? He does not call them men who do good. He calls them men who do evil. What they are doing is evil and wicked and wretched for they're leading you away from Christ, not to Christ. And then Paul uses a wordplay of sorts. Because they emphasized circumcision. They said in order for you to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. So they said that circumcision and dietary restriction and obedience to those laws and observances of various Jewish holidays, those were mandatory for salvation. And Paul says that they are mutilators of the flesh. He uses a play on words. Mutilation and circumcision are very similar, and he says that they have mutilated themselves. They have not circumcised themselves. They are not part of God's covenant people. Now, keep in mind that Paul is not denouncing Judaism. He is not denouncing his own pedigree. What he is denouncing is the value that he used to place and others have placed on religious activity in the hopes that that religious activity will merit righteousness before God. He says, if anybody has the right uh, to believe they're innocent because of religious deeds, I'm first in line. Listen to what he says in verses 4 through 6. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the teaching of the Old Testament law. Paul says, I am a naturally born citizen of the nation of Israel. And I came from one of the greatest clans, one of the greatest tribes. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, that beloved son of Jacob and Rachel. And I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means that Paul is saying he has the pure bloodline pulsating through his veins. His mama and his daddy both were faithful Jews. He says, in regards to the law, I was a Pharisee. Now, sometimes we downplay a Pharisee. We uh, kind of almost ridicule them. But in the days of Paul, in the days of Jesus, in the Jewish system, in a religious system, a Pharisee was regarded as a pure one. In fact, if you did street interviews up and down the cities of the ancient world, and you were to ask, who are some people who are going to heaven? I mean, you know it. You know they're going to go to heaven. People would say Pharisees. If anybody's going to make it, a Pharisee will make it. Because a Pharisee not only knows the law, but he does the law, and he makes sure that I do the law. And so he is a pure one. He was the aspiration of all Jewish men. Paul says, I was one of those. I was trained well. I did my job well. I knew the law. I was a Pharisee. In regards to zeal, passion, conviction, he said, I persecuted the church. I I really put feet to my Jewish prayers because the Jewish nation did not like these followers of the way, and they did their very best to stamp out the church. And Paul says, I was right there with them in in regards to zeal. I persecuted those who were followers of the way. Regarding legalistic righteousness, Paul says, I was faultless. The word faultless could be understood as blameless, but it does not mean sinless. Paul is not saying that he was sinless. But what he is saying is, I knew the law so well that when I did sin, I knew precisely what sacrifice to offer so that I could be once again righteous in the sight of God. Legalistically, I was faultless. I knew exactly what to do. It is Warren Wiersbe who says that before Paul met Christ, he was a religious man, like a lot of religious people today. Wiersbe says, he had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but he didn't have enough righteousness to get him into heaven. He had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but he didn't have enough righteousness to get him into heaven. That's a description of a lot of religious people in Paul's day and even in our day. The word righteousness is a rich biblical term. It really is a legal term. It means to be declared innocent, to be in right standing. Throughout the Bible, God is described as righteous. He is innocent. He is pure. He is perfect. The psalmist says in Psalm 119 that you, O Lord, are righteous. Your laws are true and perfect. So God is righteous. He is holy. He is perfect. He is without blemish. And in order for people to stand in front of God, we too must be regarded as righteous. And Paul says, beginning in verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. It's as if he has a spiritual ledger sheet in front of him. You know, the ledger sheet that says, profits and Losses. Whatever he regarded as a profit or a gain or an advantage, whatever religious activity that he did that he thought would somehow tip the scale in his favor so that God would declare upon him that because of what you have done, because of you what you have not done, because of your works, because of your effort, because of your activity, it has merited innocence, righteousness, good standing. Paul says all those things that I did in hopes that I would be innocent enough. All the things I used to see as an advantage and a profit, I I now regard as a loss. He goes one step further in the argument that the loss is really a liability. It's a liability because people think that the good, righteous deeds that they do somehow merit their innocence before God, and it really keeps them further and further and further away from God. So he said, what I thought was a profit now is a loss. And when I look at those losses, really, they're liabilities. He goes one step further in the argument when he goes to the next verse and says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now he's telling you the secret of Christian conversion. Now he's telling you that really, what is on the gain side of the ledger sheet is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not about our religious deeds, it's about knowing Christ that declares us righteous in God's sight. He further amplifies his argument. When he says, all those things I used to value, all those things I used to consider would give me an advantage because of my religious activity and the going to church and knowing the prayers and knowing what offerings to offer and the sacrifices to make. And because of of all the things that I did, I count all of that, all of that as rubbish. Now, he's very emphatic about that. I don't know anybody who uses that word, do you? I don't know anybody today that calls anything rubbish, but I know a lot of people who use our version of this word. This is a graphic term. Some of your translations may render it dung. That's more accurate. Rubbish is G-rated. Dung is more accurate. Some of your translations just might call it excrement. Now you're getting closer that the word that he uses to describe all of his religious activity in the hopes of being declared innocent in God's sight, somehow that would merit his own salvation, he says is nothing more than dung. It's nothing more than excrement. Most interpreters will tell you Paul is using a slang word. It's not really an acceptable word in day-to-day conversation. It's not a very polite word. The Greek word is skubala. It's a slang word. We do have some equivalents in English. At the very least, at the very least, this word means crap. All right? So at the very least, that's what it means. But most interpreters will say, this is a stronger expletive word than that. Now we've got that word in our English vocabulary, but I can't say it. Not here, not now, all right? But it's a word that describes a pile of scubala. That's what the word is, all right? And Paul says all of, my, all of my righteous deeds, all of my good effort, all of my religious activity in the hopes that I would somehow be declared innocent in God's sight, all of that I consider as rubbish. It is a pile of poo. It's a pile of dung. It's a pile of excrement. It's a pile of the word your neighbor just told you. I mean, it is a pile of scubala. That's what it is. And Paul says it has no worth, no value, no merit. Once again, he's not denouncing Judaism. He's not denouncing his pedigree. What he is denouncing is the value that he placed on his pedigree and the value and the advantage that he had because of his religion. He says all of that is nothing when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to declared innocence. So Paul says... In verse 9, I have been found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obedience to the law. But I have a righteousness that's found by faith in Christ. It's a righteousness that is from God and is by faith. Paul, he packs a truckload of theological implications and rich uh, doctrine in this one verse. He simply begins by saying, I have been found in him. I want you to notice he does not say, I found Christ. He says, I've been found in him. This is something that was done to him, not something that was done by him. He said, I am found in him not having a righteousness of my own. It is not a self-confidence. It is not a self-righteousness that comes from being obedient to the law of God. Elsewhere earlier, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3 that if the law could give life, then certainly righteousness would be found in the law. But the law can't give life. The law proves death upon death and points you to your need for Christ. The law was given to you not as soap and water, but the law was given to you as a mirror. That's what he's saying. That when you look into the law, you see your own sinfulness, your own disobedience, and there's no amount of good that you can do to clean yourself in such a way that it would merit your salvation. Even if you could be perfect for an hour, even if you could be perfect for a day, it's not sustainable. You cannot sustain perfection. You might have a good hour every once in a while. You might have a few good moments every here and now, but you cannot sustain it because you and I are sinful as birth, sinful from the time our mother conceived us, we are completely and utterly wretched. There's no way we can do enough good that would merit our own salvation. So Paul is saying just because you're religious does not necessarily mean that you're righteous. And the way you get righteous is through the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now let me tell you that the old Paul and the new Paul, both of them would testify, you've got to be righteous to stand in front of God. When I say old Paul, I mean the Paul before the Damascus Road experience where he met Jesus Christ. The new Paul is the Paul after surrendering his life to the Lord. And both, the old Paul and the new Paul, would testify, you've got to be righteous to stand in front of God. Even people today, We'll testify to that. For if we can have people that will agree that there is a God, and there is a God whether you believe it or not. Whether you believe there is a God or not a God does not prove the reality of God. God is God all by himself. Whether you believe it or not, he's God. So there is a God. And people who know that there is a God, they have this holy hunch that God is perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. He's righteous. He's innocent. And even people today have an understanding that in order order for people to stand in front of a holy, perfect God, we've got to be righteous. Now the difference is that the old Paul said that righteousness was supplied by you. The new Paul said righteousness is supplied for you. It's not that you just do enough good and that, that that garnishes your righteousness. No, it's based upon what Christ has done for you. The good that you do in your life is not a reason for your righteousness. The good that you do in your life is a result of the righteousness that's been done for you. All throughout the ages, people have tried to tried to appropriately decipher, what is this deal between faith and works? I mean, do I need to do enough good works in order to get to heaven? Or where does faith come in? Where does works? One lady came to her pastor. She says, I've got it figured out. I figured out the whole thing about faith and works. In order for us to get to heaven, it's like we're rowing a boat. And if you're going to row a boat, you got to have two oars in the water. And... The two oars that we have, one oar is faith and the other is good works. And we got to work both of them in order to get to heaven. If we only work one oar, not the other, whichever it may be, what's going to happen is you're just going to spin around in circles. Because you ever tried to row a boat with only one paddle? You just spin around in circles if you just use the same side over and over again. The pastor looked at that woman and said, you know what? There's only one problem with your illustration. Ain't nobody getting to heaven by rowing a boat. None of us are getting to heaven by rowing a boat. The only way we get to heaven is because of good works, and it's not your good works. It's the good work that's been done for you in Jesus Christ. Theologians speak of this as imputed righteousness. The word imputation means that it's credited as belonging to you. It's credited under your account as if you lived it, as if you obtained it. That's what Paul is saying in verse 9. I am found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my own personal obedience to the law. But rather, I have a righteousness that's in Christ by faith. A righteousness that's really a gift of God through faith, that God has made the divine decision to say that in order for you to be declared righteous, I am going to take the innocence of Jesus Christ, I'm going to impute it as if it belongs to you, and you're going to receive it by faith. Every Christian in the house ought to either say, amen, thank you, Jesus, or breathe a sigh of relief. You mean it's not based on how good I am? It's not based on me doing enough good things that will merit my entrance into God's kingdom and receive his salvation? No, it's not based on what you've done. It's based on the righteousness of Christ that's been attributed to you. It's not based on the righteousness that you have from observance and obedience of the law. But rather it's righteousness of Christ, from Christ, delivered to you through faith, when you come to the realization that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. When you come to that realization that Jesus died on the cross for all of my dingy, dark sinfulness, and though Jesus died and was placed to a borrowed grave, on the third day he was raised from the dead, the moment that we trust Jesus as Savior... His righteousness is credited to us as if we lived it, as if we have experienced it both now and forevermore. For the person who says, ah, what Paul is really saying is that God has now changed the rules. He's now moved the goalpost. He's now made some adjustments at halftime from the Old Testament to the New Testament because everybody knows that the Old Testament is about obedience to the law and the New Testament is about the recipients of, being a recipient of grace in Christ our Lord. No, 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 my friend. God has not changed. He does not change like shifting shadows. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. This has been God's design from day one. Do you remember the story of Father Abraham in the very first book of the Bible? In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. I will bless the world through you. When you come to Genesis chapter 15, The Lord makes a promise that Abraham's descendants will fill the earth. He said, go outside, look up at the stars, count them if you can. As numerous as the stars in the sky, so your offspring shall be. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him As righteousness. Did you hear that phrase? Abraham believed God, and it was credited, imputed unto him as God's righteousness. See, from the very beginning, God said, this is how anybody's going to be saved. They are going to, by faith, receive my word. They're going to obey my word. They're going to receive the promise. They're going to believe the promise. And when they believe upon my promise, my word, I will credit it unto them as righteousness. What God did for Abraham in Genesis 15, Jesus did for all of lost humanity who would accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Because when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God has made the divine decision to credit his innocence as belonging to us. Now, we do live a righteous life, but it's not so we can earn salvation. It's in response of that salvation. Paul comes to verse 10 and 11 and he says, I just want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be like him even unto death. And I will attain his resurrection. Paul is very poetic the way he phrases the verses of 10 and 11. But Paul says, I want to know Christ. And knowing Christ involves two things. Knowing the power of his resurrection and the pain of his suffering. Now, for most of us in here, if I were to ask you, do you want to know the power of the resurrection? You'd say, oh, yeah. I want to live in that power. I want to know the power. I want to have the power. I want to be the power. I want to personify the power. I want the power of resurrection. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I want that power in my life. Yes, sign me up. I want the power of resurrection. But we lose about half or more of us if I said, do you also want the fellowship of his suffering? We want the power of his resurrection, but we don't want the pain of his suffering. But Paul understood. Yeah, pain is part and parcel with the whole human condition. But pain is also the tool that God uses to fashion us into the image of his son. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have some tribulation. The word tribulation is trial, trouble, pain. In this world, you're going to have some pain because of Christ. But be of good cheer, Jesus said. I've already overcome the world. James, the brother of our Lord, said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And the saints of God persevered to the very end. So you know that God is going to use the suffering, the, the fellowship, the koinonia of suffering in the life of Jesus, in the life of the believer. He's going to use it to fashion you into the image of his son. Paul says, listen, I want to be like Jesus. Who is Jesus? He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God raised him to the highest place, gave him the names of every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is saying, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be obedient even unto death because I know that as Jesus was raised from the dead, so he will raise all of us in him from the dead. So I want to know the power of his resurrection. The fellowship of sharing in his suffering. I I want to be like him, even unto death. For I know that I will attain the resurrection. One theologian said it this way. It is the cross that always precedes the crown. We want the crown, don't we? We want the crown of victory. We want the crown of completion. But the cross always precedes the crown. Christ had to go through the cross to get the crown. In fact, the adversary tried to lure him away from God's design. He said, all the kingdoms I'll give to you. I'll let you avoid the suffering and the pain. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. Now, friends, that is scubala because that's what the devil does. The devil just lies all the time. But still, that's what he attempted to do to Jesus, and that's what he attempts to do to you and me. If you do what I tell you to do, the devil says, then you will have a life that's free from suffering and pain. That's impossible. So Paul says, I just want to know Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's not about what I've done. It's about what he has done. Oh, the old gospel preacher said the difference between Christianity and all other world religions is the difference between two words. And the two words are do, done. Religions of the world tell you what you must do in order to be declared innocent in God's sight and receive salvation. Christianity is the only religion that tells you what's been done for you in Christ at the cross. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said, there will not be any crown wearers up there in heaven who were not cross bearers here on earth. There won't be any crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers on earth. Paul just says, I want to know Christ. And by knowing him, to know the power of his resurrection, sharing in the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him even unto death and to attain the resurrection i said that he wrote this very poetically the best way i can describe it is this way he made a resurrection sandwich he starts out by talking about the power of the resurrection he ends up by talking about the power of the resurrection and in between that power of the resurrection there is some suffering but the resurrection is more powerful than the suffering that you and i endure and experience a few weeks ago, um, I, like some of you, did the gospel blitz. Wes and I went out. We had a stack of about 13 homes to visit. We knocked on the doors. We uh, tried to communicate who we are as First Baptist Church Pelham. We invited people uh, to trust Christ and come to church. If we exist to minister to you. Wes and I went to one particular door. Trey met us on the porch. The first few moments were very kind, very pleasant. He was uh, very appreciative that we had stopped by. Pretty early on in our spill, he stopped us and said, you need to know I am a-religious. i got to be honest with you, that phrase kind of froze me a little bit. I wasn't quite familiar with that term, a-religious, I was expecting um, I'm an atheist or I'm agnostic, and I was in my mind trying to prepare how to respond to that, but he just said, y'all just need to know I'm a-religious, so I don't really need what you guys are offering. We fumbled and stumbled and bumbled through our way. We gave him the gifts. Once again, he was very appreciative and very kind. We got back in the truck. Pulled out the next card for our next assignment. And all of a sudden it hit me like a lightning bolt. I turned to Wes and I said, You know what I should have said? I too am a religious. I'm not an advocate of religion, I'm I'm not trusting in religion to get me to God. I'm not not advocating doing good deeds in order to uh, gain access and innocence in God's sight. I'm a-religious, too. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a-religious, but pro-Christ. We sat there and we thought, you know, we should have said that, but we didn't. But you know what? I cannot wait till my next encounter with Trey because I know where he lives. And I'm gonna knock on his door and I'm just gonna thank him because he prompted me to think about some things that I hadn't thought about before. He prompted me to think, what is it to be a religious? Anti religion. Yeah, that's me. That's you, I suspect. We're not pro religion, we're pro Christ. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. All the things, all the religious activity, all the things I used to think were to my advantage. It's it's really loss. It's not gain. It's really a liability. It's not an asset. In fact, everything that I used to value so highly that would somehow get me into God's kingdom, it's nothing more than a pile of dung. I am found in Christ. That's the secret, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's not based on my self-righteousness that comes from obedience to a list of rules of do's and don'ts. No, my innocence is declared upon me. It's imputed unto me because of what Christ has done for me. So I'm just here today to say, thank you, Jesus. Let me just exhale and say, Lord, I appreciate the fact that it's not based on on me because I can't be good enough it's based on Christ and Christ alone so my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and his righteousness and I dare not trust the sweetest frame but I wholly lean in Jesus name on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other religious ground is sinking sand. Paul says in Second Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin so that he could give us his perfection. Jesus took all of the wretched disobedience of your life and mine so we could be declared innocent in his sight both now and forevermore. If you are part of the redeemed, don't you just want to say thank you, Jesus? It's not based on a certain number or criteria of do's and don'ts. If you do enough good versus not doing enough good and blah, 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 blah. It's all about who Christ is and what he's done. Now you live for Jesus. Why? Because you want to know him. You want the power of his resurrection. You want to share in his suffering. You want to even be like him unto death for he was obedient unto death. And you know that as God raised Jesus from the dead, he'll raise you from the dead. So friends, it's all about Jesus. Can I ask you, uh, do you have a story like this? Do you have a story of a moment when God just invaded your heart? Maybe it's like St. Augustine. Maybe it's like John Wesley. Maybe it's like a knobby kneed seven year old scrawny punk of a boy. Maybe it's like something like that. But God just, He just invaded your heart. He invaded your mind. The light of the Lord removed the darkness of doubt, sparked within you an inextinguishable blaze, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that on that moment you were fully, forever, converted unto Christ. Do you have a story like that? If you do, this morning, just praise the Lord. If you've got a story like that, This morning, just stop and say, thank you, Jesus. What a sigh of relief. What a weight that has been lifted from our shoulders and our heart. It's all about you. Thank you for saving a wretch like me. Friends, if you don't have a story like that, you can. Because I just have a holy hunch that today the hound from heaven is pursuing you. You can't be good enough, friend, to get into God's kingdom. You just simply have to surrender to him. Admit to God that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. His righteousness can be credited to you. And you commit your life to him. And you'll go from no faith to faith. From death into life. And what a great ride and joy it will be. We're going to sing a song. If you need to come forward, you come. Come. You say, Pastor, why would I come forward? Maybe you need to come forward to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Maybe you need to come forward, just pray and say, Lord, thank you for my salvation in Christ. Maybe you need to come forward and pray for somebody that you know and love. You're close to them. They're they're far from God. And you just need to come and pray for them. Maybe you need to come and join this church. Maybe God is calling you to full-time Christian service, and you just need to surrender to that. You see, to wave the white flag, give up, give in, and say, Lord, I'm yours. You gave everything for my righteousness. I will give everything for your obedience. Lord, I'm yours. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. Lord, we pray that the altar is full. We pray that people come for salvation, for prayer, for confession, uh, for intercession. Father, we pray that you are honored and glorified. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.